Welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're taping on Thursday, June 18th at 10 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined via video conference by Ann Edney of Bloomberg News. Good morning. Tammy Luby of CNN. Good morning. And my KHN colleague, Shafali Luthra. Good morning. So let us get right to the news. Uh, Late last week, Friday afternoon to be precise, the Trump administration released long-awaited final rules that would basically eliminate many of the anti-discrimination protections in health care and health insurance in the Affordable Care Act for transgender people. The rules overturned the Obama administration's interpretation of the ACA's anti-discrimination language to include not just sex but also gender identity. This has been the subject of litigation. In fact, the Obama Obama administration's interpretation was struck down by federal district court judge Reed O'Connor, who some might remember as the judge who found in a separate case that the entire Affordable Care Act is null and void. However, on Monday, the Supreme Court ruled in yet another case in a surprising six to three decision that sexual orientation and gender identity are protected under the law that pretty much every other federal anti-discrimination law or rule is based on, Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. So where does that leave us on the question of the health care rights of transgender people? Can they be discriminated against or not? Or is it unclear at this point? I think it's unclear, but I think um, there is probably a lot of comfort in the Supreme Court ruling that that could be very helpful going forward in overturning or preempting this rule that that CMS put out. Yeah, one would one would wonder whether I mean I guess I guess this will give them uh, wh- whoever ends up going to court over this they'll be able to say um, the Supreme Court just ruled that these people have civil rights protection. So I think. Part of the administration's justification was that there were no civil rights protections written into the law. And so, therefore, this was going back, I believe they said, to, to the letter of the law and what came out on Friday. People were also kind of, you know, what I saw on social media, people were thinking, oh, my God, this is happening as of now. And I think the the rule, even as they published it, it is a final rule, but it wasn't supposed to take effect for another 60 days anyway. But it makes me wonder why the administration went ahead and put it out when they knew that the Supreme Court case was coming any day. Were they trying to sort of make a political statement to the base? Or do you think they were like confident that the Supreme Court wasn't going to rule this way? I know it was a big surprise to a lot of people. Well, they picked an interesting day also because it was the anniversary of the Pulse shooting. It's in the middle of Pride Month. So there are several questions on timing here. It looked like the timing suggested it was a political statement, in other words. Possibly. Let's say it was definitely interpreted that way. But I I do think that they they probably also assumed, I think both your statements are correct, Julie, that they probably also assumed that the Supreme Court was going to go their way. There was a lot of surprise that 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 was the ruling um, from the Supreme Court, particularly with Neil Gorsuch leading the way. Yeah, I don't. I think no one had Neil Gorsuch writing the opinion, <laughs> upholding it on their June bingo card for the Supreme Court. Yeah, and I mean the fact that we still don't know for sure what this actually means for the rule. Like, obviously, it's a much harder battle for the administration, but it doesn't quite close the door. Seems like an important sort of avenue for them to be considering if 
if they were thinking about the court case when they put this out. I mean, we, we knew it was coming. They put out the, the, the original preliminary rule. I mean, they'd been basically saying they were going to do it. The fact that they did it was not a surprise. The fact that they did it on a Friday afternoon, on the anniversary of the Pulse nightclub shooting, in the middle of Pride Month, I mean, suggested that, that maybe they were trying to play to a different audience, shall we say. All right, well, let us move on and talk about COVID, um, which seems to be making a scary appearance in lots of places that kind of missed the first wave, like Alabama and Arizona, and in some others like Florida that had a first wave, but where people apparently didn't abide by public health warnings when they reopened. Last week, we talked about how confusing everything is. This week, I want to talk about how we might get back to normal and how hard that's going to be. Uh, from everything we know now, the best way to spread the virus is by spending significant periods of time in close contact with possibly infected people indoors in places without great ventilation. That pretty much means most offices and modes of public transportation are going to be dangerous until there's a vaccine. Um, Who's thinking about these things? I seem to be, you know, is that sort of the job of public health? Is that the job of employers? Is that the job of the government, which is sort of kind of doing it, but not really? Who's leading the way on figuring out how to make things safer? I think as far as I can tell, employers are um, wanting to find out how they can make their offices safe to come back to again. And I don't think they're anticipating a whole lot of help from the federal government, particularly. Washington seems to have sort of forgotten that the virus exists anymore. Um, And I I don't think that they're going to put out a lot of direction. And so I know at least, you know, at Bloomberg, we do get messages on how they're they're talking about this. Um, They're they're trying to figure it out. I don't think we're anywhere close to going back, um, but I think that they're trying to see what would help. I did see one of my colleagues at Bloomberg Law wrote a story that the law is being interpreted that you can't actually require antibody tests if you're an employer to go back to the office. Um, So some of these ideas of testing to make people comfortable might not actually be where they're headed. Well, also antibody tests on an individual basis aren't necessarily accurate um, because the the prevalence is still so low that the the chance for a false positive on antibodies on the chance for a false negative are really high. I mean, you can if you test a whole bunch of people, the general uh, you know the general pool is going to be correct. But testing any individual person, at least with the antibody tests we have now, doesn't seem to be you know people had been talking about these immunity passports, but. I don't I don't think we're I don't think we're anywhere near there yet. I don't think we even know that um, having antibodies means a lot. <laughs> so, you know, it doesn't we don't know if it means that you're immune or, or what or how long you're immune. Right. So I was just going to say that I think the companies and employers are looking maybe not to the federal government, but at least to public health officials on both the federal and state levels for guidance and advice, you know, obviously social distancing and, you know, hand sanitizers and masks. But the issue is, at least what we're seeing in New York and what we're seeing all over the country is, is that once you start opening to large groups of people, it's very hard to actually require, you know, maybe to somewhat you can require your employees, but once they start interacting with customers, it's very hard to require and, you know, continue all of these protocols. You know, you can't, how are you going to actually guarantee that everyone actually remains six feet apart? And, you know, people may not come in when they are actively have a fever or a cough, but what happens if, you know, they are sick, you know, they, they obviously can be sick before they come to work or they can develop it at work and then go home, but that might be too late. 
Just to think about other kinds of employers, right? The fact that they all have some level of flexibility in deciding when they're safe to reopen is means that employees are facing very different choices based on where they work, right? We have restaurants that are reopening where employees wear masks and customers don't, which seems like a risk for employees who may not have a lot of other options. And sort of going back to Tammy's point, right? We've, we've seen what happens when when places reopen, but you can't really enforce social distancing. We've seen that, that bar in Jacksonville, right, where everyone has come home and gotten sick since since going to, to a beach that was in, in theory supposed to be a safe place. Right. And then just following up on Jacksonville, I have family there and baseball tournaments have reopened. So my cousin's son has been playing in baseball and he and his sister all of a sudden didn't feel well and, you know, dry cough, fever, etc., Turns out that one of the coaches, not even from his age group, but from a younger age group, just tested positive. So now my cousin and her family are in quarantine for several days until they get the results of their tests. But who knows how many other people at this tournament. We don't know yet if they have it. Maybe they don't. Maybe it's just coincidence that both kids got sick this week. You know, if they do have it, how many other kids at that tournament do and how many other families? Yeah, even though, you know, they keep saying kids are kids are pretty safe because they don't they tend not to get it. And when they do get it, they tend not to get it severely. But that doesn't mean that they can't spread it to other people, which is sort of the, the issue about camp and school. Um, but I want I want to talk a little bit about the economy. I feel like mostly what we're seeing is this sort of giant and escalating war of words between public health officials who want to take things slowly and have people take precautions and elected officials who are worried about the damage being done to the economy. Tammy, I know you're spending a lot of time covering the economic fallout of the pandemic. Um, it looks like things are getting a little better, but is that sort of um, because when you're at the bottom, anything that comes up looks good in comparison? Yeah, I mean, you know, we have, sure, we had 2.5 million people get jobs, you know, or net employment gain in May, which was a huge surprise. We had to completely rewrite the story that we were planning to write. But there were also like 20 million jobs or more that were lost. So that doesn't mean much. I mean, it means a lot, of course, to those people. And it is sooner than expected, which is a good thing. I mean, these are this is definitely a good thing. But it's not like we're back. I mean, there's still a lot of people who have issues. I spoke this week to some food banks. And uh, one of my colleagues actually spoke to a food bank in the DC area and had a very powerful quote that said that people she speaks to who are still coming because they can't afford food, see these economic indicator reports, you know, better jobs, better retail sales, et cetera. And they say, this doesn't apply to me. Like I still don't have a job. I still, you know, am cash strapped and I don't have money to feed my family. So, you know, yes, it's a great thing that we're coming out of this sooner than expected, maybe, or at least that some some indications are showing that. But we have a long way to go and there's still a lot of Americans suffering. And at the same time, the other thing that I've been covering is unemployment benefits. And you do have employers and particularly states that really are pushing uh, people to go back to work. And as we know, there's a $600 federal benefit that a lot of employers and certain Republican legislators say that they think that this is keeping people off of, you know, away from jobs. So there's a very big effort to make sure that employers report that they've called people back to work so that those people get cut off from their benefits and are forced to return. As Shafali pointed out, some people might not be going back to work, not because uh, they're getting more money by staying home, but because they still feel like it's too dangerous to go back to work. Take but, the, but the restaurant servers. Con- right, but a general concern of safety for coronavirus does not 
mean that you can continue having unemployment benefits. Some people can stay at home under the pandemic program that Congress created this year for that will last through this year. But that's only if you have a doctor's note to say that you are in a particularly vulnerable class or you live with people in a vulnerable class. But if you're just, you know, a typically young and healthy person who just says, you know, I'm afraid I'm going to catch it on the train or on, you know, or at my office or at my restaurant, you can't you can't stay back. You'll lose your unemployment benefits. Well, that leads exactly into my next question, which is we do have a lot of seemingly careful reopenings happening. Kids are going to summer camp. Uh, recruits are going to military training. The NBA players are going to Disney World. Uh, yet there's this ominous report out of two Army bases, one in Georgia and the other in Missouri, where all the recruits were tested when they came in and they were all negative on arrival. And yet 14 days later, both of those recruit classes had outbreaks at Fort Benning at the end of 14 days, 142 out of 620 trainees tested positive, which raises the obvious question, do we really know enough to put people together in close quarters yet? I don't think we do. And I think that um, I think that the testing isn't always, you know, we know there are false negatives and um, it's happened in in my life, my sister is a firefighter, her partner, um, um, her shift partner tested negative. So, you know, when they were exposed at some point, everything, you know, so they acted like he was negative, came back four days later, he was actually positive. Um, and so, you know, you, I think that happens probably a lot, um, whether it's the viral load of the virus increasing and that changes it or whether the test was wrong, um, you know, I don't think we can rely on a negative test to change our behavior in any way. It, it, which, you know, sort of brings us back to how long are we going to actually have to sort of take these extraordinary precautions while we're still sort of figuring out who's got it where. I mean, I think it was pretty, it, it's funny, we haven't really seen a spike from the protests yet, which I think puzzles a lot of public health people, although it might still be too early in some cases. But we definitely seem to be seeing spikes from, you know, people getting out, you know, and as, as you said, Tammy, going to play baseball or going to the beach. I mean, that seems to have been a, a definite place where this is spreading. And the thing about the protest, right, is it still seems a bit early to know if we'd even be be seeing that spike, right? If we think that the big protests were were Saturday, right? People probably aren't getting tested until three to five days later. That's sometime this week. If we're going to get numbers that show that, that there is a, a huge surge in coronavirus cases, it'll probably come sometime in the future still. Well, so there's lots of things that we don't know, but there's starting to be things that we do know. Uh, and one of those things seems to be the uh, value of hydroxychloroquine in treating COVID-19. <laughs> that was the anti-malaria drug hyped so strongly by the president. Anna, there was some FDA activity on this this week. What did they say? Yeah, the, the Food and Drug Administration revoked their emergency authorization for use of hydroxychloroquine in hospitalized patients. That was essentially kind of a token of support for this use of hydroxychloroquine. Um, hospitalized patients could still use it if they really wanted to, if they got a doctor's prescription. That's not off the table, but it's a signal from the FDA that you know, this doesn't work. And they said, not only does it seem likely to be ineffective, we think that there are cardiovascular risks that are no longer outweighed by any benefit. So um, it's risky to use. And that wasn't received well at the White House. We saw some comments from Peter Navarro in the New York Times that were very angry about the FDA um, and their decision to revoke this emergency use authorization. Um, but I think the sort of public health 
uh, experts were were cheering cheering it along because the evidence has just been mounting that it really doesn't work. It was not only that people were were taking it, it because of that it had caused shortages for people who actually need it who um, have lupus. And then you know there's been so much research research into it. You know everyone wanted to jump on board and be the one to prove that this drug. Um, works. And you know, there are other things that possibly, as we saw this week, um, that could that could work instead um, and that are just as cheap and old like hydroxychloroquine is, but um, that weren't being looked at as much as, as that drug was because of the president pushing it. I feel like we're sort of starting to see the federal public health agencies, you know, stick their heads up out of the bunker. Um, the CDC this week put out something on masks, recommending that, that people wear them, which obviously is maybe the most politicized piece of this whole thing. Um, is, it, is maybe not having everything centralized at the White House going to get us sort of ironically more federal leadership? I think that's a good point. I think that that could be what's going on is they know they won't have to answer questions at a daily briefing about their decision. And it won't be something the president's likely to hear. And, you know, actually, there was an interesting exchange between the HHS secretary, Alex Azar, and Trump after the FDA revoked this emergency use. And, you know, Azar tried to sort of placate him and say, oh, well, um, the bad news is only in hospitalized patients. And, you know, to, and tried to just move on from there. Like maybe, you know, maybe we'll still find out it works in some other way. And NIH is still studying it. They haven't abandoned um, studying hydroxychloroquine despite all of the bad press around it. Well, speaking of things that we are starting to learn, Anna, I'm going to ask you to do your extra credit first because it definitely fits this category. <laughs> sure. So mine is from um, my Bloomberg colleagues and it's called Why Acting Fast is the Key to Beating a Second second wave of COVID-19. They did some data digging. Oxford University has a stringency index on um, countries and how fast they moved to do um, sort of any restrictions or recommendations and what those restrictions and recommendations around COVID were. And what they found was um, acting fast mattered more than what exactly you did. So if you acted fast and you had really strong measures, that was the you know most likely to keep your number of cases down. If you acted fast and you even had um, less stringent measures, you still did better than those that acted slow with stringent measures. So that I guess that that was like a little bit surprising to me um, that that was the case. And so I thought it was an interesting look at this, you know, because obviously we're going to go through this again. And I think maybe we are already kind of going through it in the U.S. You know, not that the first wave has ended, but we're seeing cases um, go up in places and they're certainly not acting fast on them. Yeah, that would, it's, it, there's a chart with the with this story that's really very vivid about, you know, even if you if you acted fast and didn't do that much, you did way better than the people who acted slow and did a lot. Um, I think I think probably New York it was in that category of um, acted, you know, not as fast. Obviously, they didn't know what was going on, but New York had pretty was pretty stringent and they still had a had a pretty big wave. All right. Well, I want to ask one more political question um, at, as COVID becomes more politicized. Ironically, we're also seeing the growth of the anti-vaccination movement, something that's terrifying both pediatricians and public health professionals, because the last thing we need right now is more people to get the flu this fall or more kids to get measles or mumps or other things that vaccines can prevent. 
event. Um, then Politico last week raised a pretty scary question. What if the political pressure to find a COVID vaccine is so strong that we end up sending out a shot that doesn't work? or worse, one that causes serious side effects. How far back could that push the whole public health effort? I mean, there's already this sort of public official dubiousness about public health. What would happen if we actually sent out a vaccine that didn't actually protect people? Yeah, I can't, I can't imagine the effects. I mean, it just, it's, it's almost too scary to think about. I saw, um, I didn't see this documentary about Plandemic, um, which a lot of was pushed by anti the anti-vaccine movement. Um, I saw how it took hold and heard about it and from certain members of my family talking about like, oh, did you see this? And, you know, this is all like an idea to, to keep us indoors and make our immune systems go down even more. And you know, I was shocked that it, it took hold so easily. Um, I think Facebook had a power that I didn't really realize. And so the idea that a vaccine um, for COVID would be put out and not work or even maybe worse cause side effects um, to allow this idea to take even more of a hold would be pretty terrifying. I'm old enough to remember the swine flu um, outbreak in the in I guess it was the mid-1970s, and there was a vaccine that had side effects. And I mean, it was it was a giant public health setback. And the swine flu turned out not to be nearly, you know, as bad as had been anticipated. But I can only, you know, be sort of horrified at, at what might happen to, to, the, to the waning trust in public health. I mean, I feel like, and for those who didn't listen to last week's episode, I actually urge you to, because we talked about communicating public health messages. And I feel like right now is a time when public health needs to, to explain that we don't know very much, but we're starting to learn more. And as we learn more, our advice is going to change. And I feel like that, you know, everybody I keep seeing on social media saying, oh, well, they don't know anything and they keep changing their minds. But, you know, this is not like whether Oat Bran is good for you or not. This is this is literally we are doing research and we are learning more and things that we didn't think you know, that the virus was going to act three months ago. We're now finding that it does act this way. And now we're finding that you really don't have to disinfect your groceries, but you have to be careful having dinner parties. Shafali, you look like you wanted to say something. Yeah, no, I was just thinking like the example of that, right, is like how we have talked about masks and how we've talked about asymptomatic transmission. And those were really lost opportunities for the CDC to effectively communicate that recommendations will change as we learn more. And if we want to think of like a a scary scenario, which like I would rather not, but sort of the debacle around mass communication is in some ways a really scary preview of what the vaccine talk could look like um, months to years from now. I was going to say the only somewhat reassuring thing, although not necessarily for the first responders, but before this is likely the vaccine is is available to the general public, it's going to be given more to frontline, you know, workers. And so we as sort of, you know, not particularly vulnerable, not particularly in this situation, you know, not confronted with it, will not be the first ones to get it. We don't know how long the side effects will take to actually manifest, but, you know, presumably by the time it comes out to the general public, there will be more information about it. But the anti-vax movement is very strong. Social media allows it to be even stronger. One of my students this year before all of this happened wrote an, uh, her master's project on the anti-vax movement coming out of the measles uh, situation last year and the fact that uh, New York State uh, eliminated the exemption, the religious exemption. So that became a big issue. And, you know, this is only going to magnify it. Well, I was just going to say, I think one thing that's maybe a little 
comforting is that Trump doesn't get to choose the vaccine and put it on the market. Um, he thinks he does. Right. He thinks he does. But and and I'm sure he will have some influence. But hydroxychloroquine was already on the market. He pushed it. People got prescriptions for it and used it. The company that's making the vaccine will also have their name on the line and hopefully will be weighing um, the fact that, you know, being the company that made a harmful vaccine is way worse than the upside to being the company that got a vaccine on the market. Sorry, I was just going to say, going back to, to the point about frontline workers being the first to get the vaccine, I think it's also important for us to note, right, that frontline workers are dying at insane numbers. Um, and it's just something that we also have to be really thoughtful about is making sure that we minimize the risk that they are exposed to, whatever that looks like. Yeah, I'm surprised there was a, there were a couple of stories this week about um, challenge trials for the vaccine, which involved people actually taking the vaccine and then exposing themselves to to the virus, which is a, a pretty bold thing to do. Um, but you know, now I've seen a bunch of interviews with people who are willing to do this, and it's really you know considering considering everything else that's going on, you know, you you have to really hand it to those people who say that you know for the greater good they're willing to take this chance because obviously. This is how you find out whether the vaccine works, um, mm -hmm. and and we will see. All right, well, that is the news for this week. Now it is time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week we think others should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org slash health. Anna, you have done yours for this week. Tammy, why don't you go next? Okay, so I picked a story on Medicaid from Pew's Stateline, which is a fabulous uh, media organization that covers state issues. So again, because I'm covering safety net issues and the economy, it's looking at the fact that Medicaid rolls, with, as people lose their jobs, Medicaid rolls are likely to, or actually are already increasing. And this is going to cause even more budget problems for states who are already having budget crunches. And the story looks at the fact that they, they've received some federal help from the Families First Act, particularly, but, you know, states are looking for more federal assistance. And, you know, one of the only things that they can do is because they can't keep people out of the program if they're eligible is cut provider pay. And, you know, doctors already are suffering and not that many doctors take Medicaid as it is. So that's really not a great option for states. So this is going to be yet another crunch for them. We talked about Medicaid last week, and I felt bad because I forgot to mention this part, which is that Medicaid is what we, they call a counter-cyclical program. When the economy goes down, Medicaid goes up, and boy, the economy has gone down, and more people are eligible for Medicaid, which is one of the main reasons why states tend to come to the federal government when the economy goes down, because states have to balance their budgets, and the federal government doesn't doesn't have to, and it doesn't do it. Um, Shafali. So this is a wonderful story from my colleague, Rachna Pradhan. It is White House left states on their own to buy ventilators inside their mad scramble. And Rachna does a really good job looking into Louisiana in particular, but also other states that were early hit hard by the pandemic and were trying to seek federal aid in getting ventilators and other expensive medical equipment, didn't get support from Washington, and ultimately were severely price gouged to, to pay for equipment they needed. Um, it's really smart. It's really worth reading. And she's done a really great job of just getting documents and frontline accounts that, that illuminate just what a disaster this was. And it, it just 
so points up the fact that, you know, that you really do need leadership from the federal government at a time like this, or you end up with situations like this where, you know, states are basically bidding against each other, which we, we heard about a lot. It's a great story. Uh, my extra credit is also from uh, Kaiser Health News, from my colleagues Lauren Weber and Anna Maria Berry-Jester, along with Michelle Smith of the AP, and it's called Public Health Officials Face Wave of Threats, Pressure Amid Coronavirus Response. And it goes back to what we were talking about earlier with the politicization of public health. It's about how many local and state public health officials who are quite literally working around the clock have been physically threatened, fired, or forced to quit because their advice is basically unpopular. I can't help think that losing public health expertise at a time like this uh, could do anything except make the situation even more difficult. It's a really hard story to read, but you should read it anyway. So that is our show for this week. As always, if you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us too. Special thanks, as always, to our intrepid producer, Francis Ying, who makes us all sound okay even when we're in different places. Also, as always, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. Anna? At Anna Edney. Tammy? At Luby, L-U-H-B-Y. Shivali At Shivali L. We will be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy. Be healthy.